Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He was counting on the inability to keep NATO united. He was counting on us not to be able to bring in others on the side of Ukraine. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. Well, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Joe Biden in Ukraine. Pretty impressive. Well, I think you should have slid train in there as well. I think <laughs> there was a there was a train involved, but uh, but yeah, you know, quite a dramatic uh, visit by the president on uh, you know marking the anniversary or nearly the anniversary of the war uh, in Ukraine. We can kick the foreign policy around, but we only pretend to know a lot about that. But we should kick the politics of that around, and who better? To do that, I don't want to in any way diminish your foreign policy credentials, Doug High, <laughs> but your political credentials are beyond question. What was your impression of the president's well, visit? Should, should we intro our guy here for anybody who may not have uh, heard him before? He's got a stellar bio, which we can condense. I think they've heard too much is probably the case. Former RNC communications director, deputy chief of staff to the House Majority Leader on the Republican side, an old war horse from the Capitol Hill, our friend Doug. Yes, we're going to throw you a bowl of oats after this. But anyway, go ahead and uh, talk about what you. What was your impression of what you saw? Well, I, I would argue with the with the characterization that it was a surprise. I mean, obviously, we didn't know specifically that this was happening. It's true, but if it hadn't happened, I think it would have been conspicuous in its absence. That's true. Obviously, there's a a lot of logistical planning and secrecy that needs to to go in this. The two. Reporters, I think it was one print reporter and one photographer who were sworn to secrecy. They're meeting there. They were told you'll get an email that says uh, arrival information for the golf tournament, right? <laughs> That's the level of secrecy um, that they had. But once he got there, um, and it obviously was not, an, it was not easy to get there, uh, the images are stark and they're compelling and, and they should be. And uh, you know, Zelensky gets this perhaps better than anybody in the world. Uh, it's one of the things that we would say about Trump is that he understands media and he understands optics. Zelensky obviously does as well, given his background. And we've seen this a few times now. Um, obviously, Boris Johnson had gone there twice, um, and he sort of shamed others in, into going as well, but it benefits them. They look like strong leaders um, who are doing the potentially the most important job in the world right now. A lot of good it did Boris, but yes, uh, I agree. Well, but for a while it did him a lot of yeah, good yeah. because when he had really bad headlines, that took that away. Yeah, the, the, Boris's no problem was Boris, so we may get another <laughs> yes. bite at that apple if he comes back, which he might. I Look, I, on this thing, first of all, shrewd staff work by the White House. I'll give them a kudos. They pulled it off perfectly. And frankly, the security apparatus around the president, which is, you know, serves both parties. I thought it was particularly slick. They, they tipped off the Russians. Bad day for an air raid. Take a day off. I thought that was very shrewd, very smart. It was shrewd from a security standpoint, 
well, leaking it was interesting to me that they had had that conversation. Yeah, we're in the yeah. same place on this. Yeah, Note to yeah. White House. Your guy pulled it off. It was great. Country ought to give him kudos for that. It lit up the Ukrainians. It was a win on every dimension. Now, stop talking about how brilliantly you stagecraft it. Get the process out of here. I don't want to know what staffers were on there. Let me ask you a question about this. Because if you look at the coverage of the last 24 hours in Russia, Putin was getting beaten up by the, the, his right flank for allowing Biden to sneak in and out. And the fact that, that it was announced that uh, they had uh, been tipped off made all of that even more, uh, you know, shrill. And I'm wondering, you know, did the White House calculate that uh, maybe they calculated that the Russians would release it or that it would leak? But Or did they intend to put Putin on the spot? Because they really did put Putin on the spot. I don't know. I think we're getting into three-dimensional Vulcan chess here, if anybody's I love that game. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, my my Zorgon now checks your your, your Zingba. Um, but I don't know. Maybe. We can speculate. Bottom line is the less process about the stagecraft and the more of the Biden content, including the speech he's about to give right now. We're up at dawn here because you've got to open a Ford dealership somewhere with the crew of Galaxy Quest. But yeah. take let the big content work here. I'm sending you one of those things you can hang on your rearview mirror to keep your car fresh, by the way. But I could use anyway. it. Yeah. Related to this, okay, because continuing the, th the, th the three-dimensional Vulcan, whatever you said, I also thought it was interesting that Blinken, uh, I mean, clearly he was trying to warn the Chinese, but he was meeting with the Chinese, but he issued a public warning to the Chinese. And, you know, a lot of folks back here reacted to that and, and rallied to the administration in trying to stand down the Chinese who are you know, obviously a very polarizing factor in American politics right now. And I thought all of this, at least in the short run, uh, kind of isolates the Tucker Carlson wing of the Republican Party, Doug Hyde, doesn't it? Well, potentially. And you, part of the reaction that we've seen from this, you know, is, is sadly predictable. You know, I, I remember when Donald Trump walked on the field of the Army-Navy game, that wing of the party said, look at what a great, strong leader this is, right? He walked on a football field. Who cares? Um, Biden goes to Ukraine, a war zone, and he gets criticized for it uh, by those same people. I do think the two things. Um, and one, Biden is seeing this up close, not just in his visit to Ukraine, but also in Poland. I was in Poland uh, last September and not anywhere near the border of Ukraine. And it was stark to me. 15 minutes after, less than 15 minutes after just leaving my hotel and going for a walk, how very real and seriously the Polish people take that. And that's, I didn't talk to government leaders about this at this point. I was going to buy a pretzel and people would stop me and that's say- That's a long way to go to buy a pretzel, man. You could have done that. <laughs> well, I'll show you some places in New York where you could buy those. You know? <laughs> yeah, but you got to get the real deal sometimes. And they take it very seriously. Anti-Putin- yeah. Um, murals and things like that are, are everywhere. And the other thing I would say on it is- They're right on the edge there. The so. joke the NATO generals all say, God, what if this Ukraine thing escalates and the Ukrainians cross over into Russian territory? And they all laugh and say, oh, they don't have to worry. The Poles will be in St. Petersburg in three days. You know, they, they know who they're dealing with and they're armed to the teeth. 
Um, I look, I think the the problem for Biden, because I think he did a great job on this, is all this stuff is going to wash away in the reelect. Should he run, which I'm not convinced of, and it'll be economy age and whoever the crazy Republican is next year. But, you know, the Republicans are making a mistake by complaining that he put too many miles on Air Force One or, you know, this thing was a win for freedom and it was an American president doing what American presidents do. So give them the win, guys. Most of the Republicans I saw complaining were from the Tucker Carlson wing, you know, it was Gates, it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, it was, it yeah. was those folks. It, it you know, I, most of the others were fairly quiet. Lindsey Graham, of course, was out there, and a few others supporting him. But one guy, I want, yeah, I want you to listen to one Republican who had a contrarian view. Uh, Jeff, can you play Trump? Continuing to pour money in is delaying everything. It's delaying a lot of settlement. It's delaying a lot of things, but. It's also getting a lot of people killed because every day that that goes on, more and more people are getting killed. More and more of some of those incredible buildings with the domes that are a thousand years old, they're just laying down dead right now. <laughs> they could be condos. We're losing good architecture there, uh, says, the, the, says the developer. Yeah. yeah, anybody who's seen some of his monstrosities knows he, he loves good architecture. But the, you get the point, which is, you know, he basically is part of that Tucker Carlson wing when it comes to Ukraine. Uh, is this going to be a, is this going to be a dividing line in the Republican Party? And B, and this is the bigger question to me politically, uh, you know, you read what's actually going on there and Ukraine has big challenges. Uh, they, they are running out of, uh, the, you know, military. They have a smaller population. Uh, Putin is conscripting everybody. They're, they're, you know, they're not exactly the, uh, you know, Patton's army, but, uh, but he still has bodies and, 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 and a kind of a bottomless uh, willingness to suffer and inflict suffering on the, uh, on the Russian people, something for which they're famous. Uh, what if this thing does drag on? So that that seems oh, to be it will Trump, drag on, and that seems to be Trump's bet that this will become unpopular politically here. Well, Trump's always had the populist strain of "I'm against war, Bush wars, anybody's war," because um, he thinks that's the applause line, and it's not the the, the Tucker Carlson wing; it's the Putin wing. Yeah, I agree. My my guess is being in the Putin business will be worse politically than the nativism on the fringes of the Republican Party that I think will grow a little. I mean, I don't discount it. I think there will be fatigue and there's an isolationist streak and this thing can go on for a while. It may go on at a lower intensity, though. I talked to some smart people in this space who said, you know, they had a five-year war where five people were dying a month. I mean, this thing could kind of boil into a slow stalemate for a long time. We just don't know. But we'll have enough traction to save Donald Trump, take over the Republican Party? I don't think so. Doug? Hey, look, it still becomes a real challenge here for Zelensky, ultimately, because this is creeping into everything. So as Republicans are criticizing the government's reaction to the train derailment, they're using Ukraine as an example. And every day, you know, we're at the one year anniversary this week that we get past it, that exhaustion uh, only creeps up for voters and not just the Putin wing or the Carlson wing or whatever, but everyday Republican voters. And it's why I think Zelensky needs to do something a little different than what he's been doing. Look, these images with Biden with with Rishi, with Macron are great, but he needs to do more. And so often we see Zelensky with a Hollywood actor. And 
That's not what those Republican voters or even some of those voters on the left, that's not the media they're consuming. And I would tell if I were advising Zelensky, obviously I'm not, I would say less Ben Stiller and a little bit more Brett Baer. Those voters need to hear from you. He does listen to Hacks on Tap on a regular basis. <laughs> so you, you, may, you may be advising him. But the thing that I, I'm a very strong supporter of what we're doing in Ukraine, because I do believe that it's bigger than Ukraine and that the principle uh, that, uh, that one country can go and gobble up another and that somehow this kind of savagery can be rewarded is a, is a, is a terrible, terrible signal that we're going backward uh, in the world. So I, I completely support what's, what, what we're doing. Uh, but you know what I see that around the corner is a fight over the debt ceiling a fight over spending, and people are going to start adding up the money, and they're going to be. And you hear this is what you hear from you know the Marjorie Taylor Greens in the world. And I I really don't like to quote her, but the fact is that she leverages power of sorts uh, these days in the Republican Party. But the you know I I wonder Murphy uh, whether this whole why are we you know how much are we going to spend on this. When we can't even, but you know, support our own budget here. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to make the argument, and you are too. But we're talking politics here, and I'm asking you a political question. No, I think it has some currency. I mean, the other equation is okay. Democrats, you believe in this Ukrainian thing? Give up some entitlements for the first time ever. Um, you know, it's not a one way argument. So I think the whole spending thing. Uh, we'll have a comeback in the Republican Party after taking a long, drunken vacation during Trump. Uh, and so there might there might be some teeth into it. I mean, the, the problem with Ukraine is neither side can afford to lose. It's now a proxy war. Now, you know, if it's the most important war for the future democracy, then logic would say that American troops ought to be there. Oh, no, wait a minute. Stop. Um, so we're, we're going to have this proxy war. The most important thing that's happened that I think will become part of the politics uh, is it looks like uh, the, you know the Chinese are now responding to balloon and all that by moving closer to Putin. They could prop him up. So this thing could go on a while, and it's a problem because if we give them the weapons to win, the outcome there could be really troublesome. You know, because uh, if Putin's cornered, he can't afford to lose, and he's got a, an arsenal that's scary in some ways. So I agree. It'll be a throbbing thing, and Republican support, which is already lower than Democratic and independent support, could go somewhat lower. Um, but I, I don't think that'll drive the election. I think other things will be bigger. Yeah. The last thing I'd say quickly is, you know, this trip, it is another argument to Joe Biden to another great accomplishment do you have to run for re-election? Are you the guy? Um, you know, just to just to take the win and take the bow and and have what was really a extremely impressive first term and let somebody else do it. You're making the argument that you want to make. He would make the counter argument, which is in the last few weeks I've given this uh, tour de force State of the Union. I faced down the Republicans. I uh, you know I, I flew around the clock to get to Ukraine to be with, uh, you know, I'm holding the coalition together. I'm, you know, everything he does of this nature is going to be offered as evidence of his vigor. It is not evidence of what his vigor is going to be, admittedly, in, right, in that's two, the four or six years. Right. And that's that's the problem. But uh, but his supporters, I'm telling you, and, and you know, look, I, I think Biden has, 
I think history is going to be a lot kinder to Biden than voters are right now. I agree with that, too. It's just, you know, if there's ever a time to take a bow and leave him wanting more, he keeps racking up the short-term wins. Um, You know what I think? I think he really wants the affirmation of re-election. I think it's really important to him to have that affirmation. And, um, you know, we'll see what he does. We'll see what he does. Uh, uh, But And apparently the, the decision now or the official announcement may not come until April, which is when he did it last time. Uh, but um, I, I'm just I'm thinking in the short run, there's going to be a lot of high fiving over at the White House about. Oh, this. yeah. In fact, in process stories about the high fiving, which I would knock off if I were them. Yes. Doug, sorry, we've been gone into one of our long double rants here. What what what's your take? Will will this be let me ask you the summary question here and anything else you want to add. Will this be the highlight uh, that people talk about? in a year and a half saying he couldn't do that today. He's too old. Or will this give him rocket fuel forward? I don't think we know yet. And and part of that is- You should be in politics. That was a, you, <laughs> we're going to have to put you on the ballot. Part of it is, is the very obvious question of Biden's age. And, you know, when you reach the age he does, you age faster every day. And he's in, he's in a job where you age faster every day. I mean, David, you obviously saw that I did. up close- with with Obama, it ages you faster, and so you know Biden. Biden to me sort of sometimes reminds me of, and I, I saw this up close, seeing Sinatra in the last couple of years when he was touring when he shouldn't have been, and in one minute he sings "Come Fly with Me" and hits every note. Three songs later, he struggles to remember the words to "My Way," and sometimes Biden is really strong, and and the next time he's not. That's only going to increase. He's going to have more bad moments um, than he did a month ago, six months ago. And that that part of that. Well, challenge. he keeps setting a higher bar now. God bless him. He's at that train. I mean, it's <laughs> great. But now it's, he's setting a future expectation. Anyway, I think we've hammered it to death. I wrote uh, a little bit about this in The Atlantic this past week. You know, I think that what they're really hoping for is Trump, either Trump to be the nominee or Trump yep. to destroy the person who is the nominee. And I think that is their re-election plan. But, but you know, just I can't resist. That was the Romney plan, too. Well, people don't like Obama, so he'll lose and I'll win based on the economy. Whenever you have the passive strategy of waiting for the other guy to give you the win, it is a, it is a risky mistake. Yeah, but we didn't have, I mean, having been there for the Obama race, we obviously had a lot of obstacles, including an economy that was even more challenging than the one that Biden has had to deal with. But uh, we did have a 51-year-old guy. Right. And, right. That, and that, was, uh, that was really useful because he was a, uh, you know, he was a young stud out there and, uh, and, and we, could, we could run him on every play we needed to and feel like he was going to execute it. And people didn't have the reservations. There, there, there are genuine reservations I mean, legitimate reservations that people have, they're asking people to take a leap of faith. Uh, and I think it can be hard. But listen, speaking of Trump. And speaking of generational change, I'm going to set you up on the transition here. But oh, go, thank go you. to Trump first. Uh, one of the things I also wrote about in that piece was how, how people are trying to navigate around him, the folks who want to run for president and the folks who don't, uh, because there is still this fear of Trump, fear that he can ruin careers and fear that he won't accept the results of the election. And he did say 
recently in an interview with Hugh Hewitt that he wasn't sure he'd support the Republican nominee, and we'll have to see uh, about that. Well, that must have made a whole bunch of people feel uneasy because even I know you and I talked about this last time, Mike. I still believe that he will retain enough juice. Uh, you know, yeah, I think even if he were sitting in a prison, he might retain enough yeah, juice. Yeah, I maybe I I know th- this is a very popular Democratic therapy blanket of the moment, and it might be true. It's totally plausible that well, if Trump doesn't run and make it easy for Biden to win, he'll sit on the sidelines and cripple the Republican, making it easy for Biden to win, even if he is 111. Easier, I don't think it's gonna easier. Be easy. yeah. But point is, maybe you know, maybe maybe a magic hobo will come up here and you know give me a million dollars in gold. I. I just I don't know. I think if Trump's if the fish starts to rot, it could rot fast. But the odds are better that Trump will wreck the Republican Party one more time than that your that hobo's going to drop by your place <laughs> with a bag full of gold. But magic uh, hobo, magic hobo. Uh, yeah, maybe, but we we don't know. And I I just I suspect that if Trump collapses, it'll be big, and he'll have less of a grip at the end. It's just like all these third party candidates; they're always huge in August and September and by the end of it it's comic relief and I know Trump is different but we're we're see we're we're getting some bets going soon we're we're codify yeah. all this uh but Doug the the reason I bring this up is I I listened to a bite uh from Fox of Nikki Haley who had I think by most accounts a very good announcement last week uh you know for president but she went on uh, Fox and the subject of Trump came up. Uh, Jeff, can you play that? Clearly, you think you're a better option than he is or you wouldn't have gotten into the race. So where do you two differ? I don't focus on President Trump. And it's amazing that the media wants to talk about that so but much. But you will have to because to get I through just the GOP primary. To- you will have to focus on him and Governor DeSantis or anybody else who gets in to get to President Trump. You will Shannon- have to get through that field. My announcement was to a few thousand people in South Carolina. I just had packed rooms in New Hampshire. Not one person asked me about President Trump. Everybody wanted to talk about Biden. Everybody wanted to talk about the problems facing American families. I am focused on Joe Biden. He's the one that's the president. Doug, you referee this for a minute. I think she had a middling announcement. I mean, I'm not a Haley fan. You hate Haley. No, I don't hate anybody. But I, know, I, but I just sorry, I hate I, is a I've bad been. Word. I knew her back in the reform days. Then I've seen her do five handsprings back and forth on Trump. I've seen her take deserved credit for the compromise to bring down the Confederate flag. And I've seen her completely. Well, she, which she didn't mention in her announcement. From her, no, it's gone now. It was her signature accomplishment that was gone. So believing in nothing, which I think is the truth of her, unfortunately, it's kind of tragic, is going to be a tricky way to be the future of the Republican Party. I think she'll be caught in no man's land. And I think there's a stronger candidate coming out of South Carolina we're talking about in a minute. But, but Doug, what what is the Republican hack talk on her announcement in D.C.? And how do you think she's positioned herself? And does she have a real shot if Trump does not surge to the nomination and delight Democrats everywhere? Uh, she, of course, potentially has has a real shot. And part of it is just the structure of, of the primary process. So we've got Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Obviously, we can talk about South Carolina in a little more detail um, in a bit. But she is, granted, she hasn't been a candidate on the ballot in a while, but she's a very effective retail politician. So, you know, the, the speech aside, and there are good speeches and there are bad speeches. Amy Klobuchar gave that great speech in the snow. 
And that's sort of all we remember about our campaign, that and soup and combs. Um, but there was sort of this joke when Nikki Haley ran the first time that if she saw two people standing on a corner in Columbia, South Carolina, she'd turn it into a political rally. Well, that's Iowa. That's New Hampshire. And she knows how to do that. So once she gets that muscle memory back, I think she's going to be pretty effective. And in the meantime, part of the conversation that I've heard and, and had isn't so much specifically about her, but what the past week tells us. And it, it tells us that these candidates are not, they, they may or may not be scared of taking on Donald Trump, but they also know that Trump is at his most effective when he has an opponent. And sure, Nikki Haley now is technically opponent because she's running against him, but she's not going after him. And if she were to attack Donald Trump, the onslaught that Trump hasn't shown on her yet because he's still talking about Ron DeSantis and all this other stuff, um, it, it is she's avoiding. And so it's a bit of a rope-a-dope potentially. But, but isn't it a thing if she starts to rise, that'll begin, right? He won't tolerate her catching on. Sure. DeSantis is tied in some polls. Uh, with Trump and Trump is wailing away on him and he's not responding to Trump either. Right. Nobody wants to respond to Trump because first of all, you know, when you get into a pissing contest with Trump, he comes with a much larger tank than anybody else. Uh, and secondly, uh, uh, there, I think there is this worry that if you get nominated, that you need him at least to not be a, an active destructive force. And those two uh, things, I think, are dream. He, he, he can't help it. I yeah. think it's a very difficult mm -hmm. line to walk. I mean, the thing about Haley, I, I, I disagree with Mike. I thought she gave a pretty effective speech. I don't think content wise, I, th I think there was a little of something for everybody. She did omit the uh, the most important, probably the most important political thing she did in her career, which was lower the Confederate flag. I mean, I agree with all that. And it does raise the question, if, if when she meets those two people on the street in Des Moines, uh, if one has one point of view and one has the other, <laughs> what is she going to do? Well, it'll be interesting. And that's Iowa, too. You know, you're in the griddle. Well, meanwhile, well, she's looking for a crowd that's into pablum. Tim Scott's running paid Facebook talking about his faith and how it changed his life just in Iowa. Tim Scott, of course, being the uh, senator from South Carolina who's also rumored to be running, who has $26 million in the bank and is intriguing to me because he's not a grievance conservative. But he has a real evangelical connection, which is great news in Iowa. Not so great in New Hampshire, by the way. I always tell people running, be careful of playing the pure Iowa card because the best slogan in New Hampshire is screw Iowa. But that said, uh, keep an eye on him. And they're both from South Carolina. That's going to be interesting. And, I, and you've spoken highly of him several times, so I'm beginning to get the feeling that he's your he's your guy. In no, this, I'm uh, still I'm I don't want to doom any of these people with my support. <laughs> you know, come on, I'm for Nikki. Um, you know, flexible inflexible times deserve a flexible candidate. My only point is what this really tells us is the Republican Party is open for business. None of these people are being stoned for announcing. That's not what would have happened a year and a half ago. Uh, so that is the big signal here. And then we are see there are no shortage. Yunkin is looking at it. Sununu up in New Hampshire, I think it's tough for him to run because they'll undercut the state business. But great guy. I'd be all for him. Larry Hogan, of course, DeSantis. So the fact that there's actually a pre-primary race starting is in itself a huge signal. As I've, I may have said here 
uh, this year before, but what better thing in given this political year than to have the young in your name? And maybe that's what Youngkin <laughs> is is thinking about. Young enough to lead. I, I want to ask a question about Haley and about Scott. I don't want to. I don't want this to be misinterpreted because it may be true of others as well. But there's a whole lot of talk that these guys want to be in the mix, but that they may end up on the ticket rather than on the bottom of the ticket rather than on the yeah. top. Which would be one more reason, wouldn't it, not to go hammer and tongue against Trump just in case he manages to navigate his way through this car wreck? Well, I think they're thinking two things. One, something's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to choke on meatloaf or get laughed out of the party, but he ain't what he used to be. So let me buy my lottery ticket. Maybe I run in eight years. Maybe maybe I get lucky now. Maybe I'm VP. There's just so much upside that everybody wanting to make a move. And the other thing it says, and maybe they're wrong, is they smell. They we're in the Serengeti here, a tough business, and they look at Biden and they look at an old gazelle. So for all those reasons, Annie in, which is why I think yeah. in the preseason a bunch of them are going to run. Now I'm not sure in the primaries they're all going to run. Trump has a comeback. Some will get scared. The donors who don't want Trump are going to try to narrow the field preemptively. You know, we're going to have all kinds of good Republican drama here. We've seen some people step away. Tom Cotton's not running. A year ago, he would have been on that list. Ted Cruz isn't running. He would have been on that list. And I'm just happy when we see people who are running for president who want to actually win an elective office, not sell some books or use that to do infomercials or whatever it may <laughs> You're be. You're not talking about Mike Huckabee, are you? Well, of course. But also, you know, with Tim Scott, he's remarkable. I've spent a fair amount of time around him, and I'm hard-pressed to think of a member of Congress or senator who's more universally liked. Everyone I know likes he's Tim Scott. He's got a little of that Reagan thing going. I mean, you know, yeah, and that's rare now. He, he does, and he's, he's upbeat. He's We're going to have to sell this segment to uh, the Scott campaign here as a infomercial, but go ahead. Oh, come on, come on. Well, look, he's brought on, you know, on his super package, brought on Corey Gardner and, and Rob Collins, who was the ED at the senatorial yeah, committee. Smart guy. That's a great place to start. I just wonder whether or not in a party that is so ideological and so, frankly, hard-edged right now, whether they may be the antidote that people choose. Right, that, that's the thing. Are they voting for the what they didn't have last time, or do they want more of the angry populism? That That is the rocket fuel behind Scott, but it's all theoretical. You know, it has to be thrown at him to find out. Well, you still got to get off the launching pad here before we right. decide what, what, what about his rocket fuel. Well, and he has time, as do all the other candidates. There's no hurry. Well, no, he is. That, look, look, yeah. look, have you seen the Facebook ad? Running in Iowa? Yeah, no, I understand. But I mean, we have to see how the launch goes is what I'm saying. But uh, I, listen, I know him reputationally. I know what you're saying, Doug, is true, both among uh, Republicans and Democrats, although me saying that probably doesn't help him. No, you came out for Haley already. So you, but, we know uh, no, what no. the evil Democratic plan is. I'm just a spectator here. <laughs> Humble shoemaker, you know. I'm sitting here. <laughs> on the stump watching the parade go by and and just reporting what I see as we do here on uh, Hacks on Tap. Let's stop for a minute and listen to a word from one of our fine sponsors. 
So, Axe, when I look at you, I see culinary expert, despite the mustard stain on your tie from Manny's. That is a sign of, of culinary expertise. It, it actually is. I'm with you on that. So tell me, what is HelloFresh, our great sponsor? HelloFresh, and I've experienced this product. It is a great service. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So you get to skip trips to the grocery store, and you can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and, and this is no small thing, affordable. That's why, Mike Murphy, it's America's number one meal kit. Well, there's a reason it's number one, X. It helps you do all kinds of good things as well as eat deliciously. I mean, remember those New Year's goals you promised yourself you'd stick to? Yeah. Well, none of us do. But HelloFresh is here to help you eat better by delivering fresh ingredients right from the farm and easy recipes that even you can cook, X, right to your door, taking all the hassle out of dinner time. And you can eat great, eat fresh, eat healthy, and not order too much. You can keep that new year's resolution yeah i've honestly uh, had these and they really are good and now hello fresh has 40 weekly recipes to choose from so you can say bye-bye to your recipe rut and treat yourself and your family to exciting new flavors every week yeah you know some of them are so easy to cook the flavors are great the portions are filling and they're ready in less than 15 minutes think about that think of all the time you save not fighting your way through the supermarket meal planning all that i mean you could be having their delicious southwest pork and bean burrito or seared steak and potatoes with bernays sauce oh i me, i'm getting hungry too you can customize select meals by swapping proteins or sides even adding protein to a veggie dish. And now, mm. now you can even upgrade for organic chicken or organic ground beef. So you really can't beat that. Last thing I can't resist, the ingredients get from the farm to your home in less than seven days, not from a factory somewhere in New Jersey. So how do you get this stuff? What do you do? So go to hellofresh.com slash hack65 and use code hack65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That magic URL one more time, hellofresh.com slash hacks 65. Why hack 65? Because code hack 65 gives you 65% off. That's incredible. Plus free shipping. Check it out. Yes. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. There's a race in Wisconsin, we teased it last week, that is for a local office, a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, that will have, by the time it's done, probably $30 million spent. So talk a little bit about it and the race and why. Yeah, huge outside money. They have an elected Supreme Court there. They're having a huge brawl kind of between business and labor, between left and right, all the usual fault lines. And because independent groups can come in and spend a lot, they are. What, what's kind of interesting to me, and, you know, we're, we're, we're see where it all lands. Uh, it's in April. Well, right now it's... The, yeah, there's a primary on Tuesday, and then there will be a a runoff in April between the, the top two finishers. Yeah, That's the key race. And the two finishers... Uh, well, there are a bunch of them, but the leading on the right, the leading is Jennifer Doro, 
And on the left, the leader is Janet. And I apologize, Janet. I'm going to mangle your name. She's even doing the spot where everybody mispronounces her name that I did once for a guy named Rob Mossbacker, a.k.a. That's every day of my life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's only four letters. Janet Proskowitz, uh, as in prosecutor, but I think I mispronounced it, who's a county circuit judge in Milwaukee. But here's the interesting thing. I think the punditariat thought this would all be about abortion rights because that's the big issue and you can't swing a dead cat in a D.C. cocktail party without hearing about it. And there is a lot of power in that issue. And we saw that in the midterms. But you ought to hear the ads they're running out there. It's all crime, 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 and they're yeah. just here. Let's hear a little sound of some of the thoughtful discourse from each side. Violent felon Anton Beasley abducted and raped a 15-year-old girl. Judge Janet Protasewicz could have given him 20 years in prison. Instead, she gave him time served and probation. Probation for a child rapist? An Oak Creek man who pled guilty to domestic violence is now accused of stabbing his in-laws in Illinois during a two-day release from court. The judge who gave him those two days of freedom was Jennifer Doro. First of all, I want to meet those in-laws because I'm trying to keep an open mind on the Republican. I want to meet the voiceover who said the judge's <laughs> name right. Yeah, no, exactly. They should get double scale for that. <laughs> B- bottom line is I'm now I'm going to hide from Wisconsin for a few years because it's clearly crime world. But it's interesting to me they're doing the basic equation of judging crime, n- not trying to you know play the uh, abortion rights card a little bigger, although that is part of the campaign. It's in there, but it's not the f- number one thing. It'll be interesting to to see what happens when the two finalists are chosen. One will be a Democrat. One will be a Republican. They don't run with party labels uh, on the ballot, I don't believe. It'll be interesting to see. I better check that, but I'm sure that, I'm pretty sure that that's right. But it'll be interesting to see whether the debate expands to some of these other issues come the fall. But I have to tell you, you know, just looking at the Chicago mayor's race, And looking at polling from the Chicago mayor's race, I mean, public safety and, you know, Wisconsin's not far from us. Public safety is issue number one, two and three in that mayor's race uh, as well. And uh, the guy who's almost certainly going to make the runoff is the candidate of the Fraternal Order of Police, Paul Vallis, who has made his entire campaign about crime and public safety. Uh, the mayor of the city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, is struggling to make the runoff. And the guy who, who seems to be surging a little. Yeah, I'm curious about him. What's your take Brandon on Brandon Johnson? Johnson is a county yeah. commissioner who was uh, African-American from the west side of Chicago, endorsed by former teacher, endorsed by the Chicago Teachers Union, very powerful force in Chicago politics. He is surging. Um, and he alone among the candidates has really you know, uh, talked about uh, public safety holistically and less about, uh, you know, he has not committed himself to putting more police on the streets. He will be tagged in a, in a general, I'm sure, as a defunder. Uh, but uh, you could have a real ideological gulf and you could have a runoff between the candidate of the FOP, the police union, and the candidate of the CTU, uh, the teachers union. Oh, It'll be be fascinating. Still might be the mayor. It could be Chewy Garcia, the congressman. But, you know, Johnson seems to be the one with a little bit of propulsion right now. The, the, now, that Johnson propulsion, is that excellent message or is there a ton of teachers money on television now helping move him up? I think it's mostly the latter and they've given him millions of dollars. Uh, he's a good performer in debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may have helped him some. 
but the CTU also is a good organizing force on the ground. And I think that that is helping them. Like I said, I mean, I think it's a, it's a coin toss between the three trying to get into the runoff with Vallis, uh, with Vallis uh, likely to win. And we'll, the, that primary is a week from Tuesday. We'll have, we'll have more on that. What, what, just one, one last question, because I'm obsessed with this as a longtime voter there. The um, oh, Vallis, I agree. I think he'll make the runoff. He, he, he's kind of the white sharp pencil guy, going to turn it around, got the cops. Doesn't he have a cap? You know, if it's Lightfoot, the mayor, That's he can probably do it. But with a fresh new face. Well, the, the, if it depends. You know, I think it's going to be a really interesting question. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, uh, our friends uh, Joe Trippi and Mark Melman are doing his race. And they've branded him again and again as a lifelong Democrat. They invented this idea that he advised the, the Obama Justice Department on public safety just so they could put his picture up next to Obama <laughs> in a commercial. Oh, those guys know how to earn their fee. <laughs> They're doing everything they can. Well done, boys. To make him. And, and he had a little hiccup this week because. Yeah, DeSantis showed up. The right? FOP invited Doug DeSantis yeah. to, uh, to an event. And uh, so he had to disclaim that right away. So it's going to be interesting. But right now, he's the only white candidate in the race. He's got a clear base among uh white ethnic voters, Northwest and Southwest, probably will make inroads on the lakefront where people are security conscious. Uh, and um, I think he's going to end up comfortably in the lead at the uh, end of this. How big is the white vote in a primary there? 40%, 45? Yeah, probably so, 40. Yeah, okay. Yeah, wow. Jump on Chicago. I'm looking forward to my many votes. You know, it could be less. It could be 35. Okay. But I mean, the point is in a primary... And that's probably closer to forty. But in a primary, yeah. uh, if you if you dominate your base, there are seven black candidates. Right. So hi, we're leaving you out of the the deal <laughs> here. I want to talk about John Fetterman. Yeah. Because you know I I feel for him. Uh, he had the stroke in the summer. We can argue about whether his campaign was as forthright as they should have been before the primary about the severity of the stroke he had. But he had it, and he got elected. He's gone to Congress. He's still struggling with the um, the the uh, uh, voice processing, word processing uh, issues that the aphasia that he had as because of the 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 stroke. But he's also suffering. Uh, we've now learned with depression, and he's checked himself into a hospital. His team says it could be a month before he returns to work. I applaud him for doing that, for A, taking care of himself, oh, for completely. B, being open about it. This shows how changed politics is. But what are, are, are there political ramifications for him one way or the other here? You know, I hate to be a broken record and say we don't know yet. In the short term, clearly, you know, there's been an outpouring of, of sympathy and empathy and concern for him. Um, I think the only negative statement I saw was from Ron Johnson. No surprise yeah, there. Right. Um, Miscongeniality. Even, yeah, even Ted Cruz, you know, said the good and right thing. Where the question of politics really comes into this is how ongoing are Fetterman's health issues, plural. And if this is a month, that's fine. If it takes longer, you may get to a certain point where voters are, are saying, you know, we want to be sensitive here, but, and that potentially becomes a political problem for 
um, for Fetterman. And, and there's a reminder that, you know, the Senate seats and the House seats, you know, aren't theirs. They don't belong to the Senate or the member. They're that congressional district. It, it, they belong to the voters ultimately. And, you know, we've seen questions in other ways um, brought up about Dianne Feinstein, um, certainly Thad Cochran, Strom Thurmond, Jesse Helms, you know, questions of age um, and whether or not they could really do their job. And essentially you would have chiefs of staff acting as the member or the senator, Ralph Paul from Texas, a um, Democrat turned Republican member of Congress who was 90 plus. Um, this is a very different example where we've just not been there before. Um, but I think need to be mindful that if this is an ongoing um, concern, that politics eventually will will enter that equation. I feel for him. You know, yeah, it, it, it is a tough situation, and I applaud his courage in checking himself in. The, the thing to condemn here is the thing that really wasn't his fault. I think the staff made a decision during a campaign to cover this thing up and not level with the voters of Pennsylvania how serious it was. Uh, and that's led to a situation where he's been put, Fetterman's been put in, in an impossible situation. Now, I hope he has a full recovery and can serve with his duties. But if he, if he can't in the short term, it's legitimate to say, should he be there? You know, yeah. Sad, but legit. Well, and, you know, the New York Times article mentioned that, you know, he didn't have a chance to fully recover from the stroke right. because right. he eventually went back on the on the campaign trail and in yeah. campaign terms. That seemed like a lifetime in stroke recovery terms. It, cer it certainly wasn't. And so that's why I say health issues, plural. It's not a question of, you know, depression at which he's, you know, seems to have handled very admirably. And yeah, we're in a very different atmosphere than we were in, in 1972 with Thomas yeah. Eagleton, of course. Um, but as these issues continue, um, do Democratic voters in Pennsylvania start to ask questions? And if so, uh, politically, that becomes very difficult. Yeah, just to be crass. It also sort of complicates the situation in the Senate because mm -hmm. you know you've got a couple of senators who are have some health issues. But if one senate, you know, if your margin becomes much tighter yeah. uh, if a couple of senators. There are some who are suggesting that, um, and this may be a politically advantageous to them, but that the Feinstein re retirement announcement isn't enough. She should go ahead and resign because they say she can't do her job. Well, that question then can be expanded, obviously, you know, to others. Yeah. Well, that create a whole other can of worms because then the governor would have to <laughs> yeah. appoint somebody. And, exactly. and the governor's already said kind of what the sort of candidate, a narrow definition he'll appoint. And meanwhile, you got two gorillas here running in the primary, Congressman Schiff and, and Congresswoman Porter. And Congresswoman Lee now. Gorillas, you mean by out. strong candidates? Is that what you're saying? No, just people you don't want to call up and say, hey, Adam, guess what? I'm going to appoint somebody else. Oh, yeah, yeah. For Diane's seat. Well, he's done uh, that and, once before. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and he's not exactly Captain Tungsten, the governor. So my guess is he'll <laughs> avoid that at all costs. You know, I'm down here in Arizona for a bit, and I've been watching this Senate race. And I, I heard a rumor I, I'm, that... Uh, Actually, that Tim Scott was down here, but also that uh, Kirsten Cinema was there, hat in hand at the uh, the recent PGA golf tournament, raising money. She's has she reported in the last report over eight million dollars in the bank. Meanwhile, Carrie Lake, who you know, still pursuing her phantom issues <laughs> relative to the governor's race, is now sort of slowly creeping toward the possibility of running. Uh, for the Senate. And you've got Congressman Gallego, Ruben Gallego, who's 
in for the Democratic thing. Awkward situation for Democrats in the Senate uh, because they need Cinema's vote. Yeah, I, I said this earlier when everybody said she's dead as an independent. Yeah, we'll see because if Crazy Carrie Lake is running, Cinema suddenly becomes the adult choice. I mean, everything big Biden's got done, she's been part of. You know, if you take a second look at her, it gets better and better if you can't abide a nut like Carrie Lake in the Senate and you're not a hardcore progressive uh, and, and signed up with Rubin. So th- this thing is going to go a while. It's yeah. fascinating. It'd be interesting to see how Gallego plays it because he, you know, there's some issues on which uh, he doesn't line up with the progressives. And I think he'd rather be a populist in the race uh, than a progressive. But he's, you know, he's got a great story. Uh, you know, rat, he sort of started off quite poor, uh, got a scholarship to Harvard, enlisted, you know, went off to war. Uh, you know, he's got a good uh, story. But uh, the problem for cinema is just she's just not very popular with Democrats, Republicans or independents. In that sense, she's a unifying figure, <laughs> but uh, but not the kind that gets elected. Right. She needs a campaign to either fix herself or die. That's the open question. I just think she has a path to get a second look. Um, I mean, if he catches on and, uh, you know, it's still going to be close if, if it's C- Carrie Lake, because she'll have a big nod of Republican crazy there. Anyway, I, I just don't – I think anybody writing the end of this uh, little little epic here is premature. And the Mitt Romney campaign event for Kristen Cinema would be fascinating. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he will, and he will campaign. Oh, he totally would. He yeah. totally would. Her biggest fan. But is there any way, Doug, you see – can Carrie uh, Lake be stopped if she runs for uh, the Senate, or will she be the nominee? It seems difficult, and that's the challenge that Republicans have sort of backed themselves into. And it's not just an Arizona problem. Arizona is maybe the most prominent example. But look at what happened, you know, in Michigan just over the past couple yeah. of days, where the Trump endorsed person lost to somebody even more Trumpy. Um, and I texted with a friend who works in Michigan Republican politics and said, "How bad is it?" He says, "It's hard to see how it could get worse." No, it's incredible. The DePerno is is crazy on the two plus two equals eleven scale. Uh, the unpronounceable name that I won't give publicity to, who won, is two plus two equals Beezlebub crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, just unbelievable. The once proud Michigan GOP that I worked with for two decades, they now ought to put a fence around the leadership and declare it an asylum. It is heartbreaking. Oh, we should make clear we're talking about the state chairmanship. Yeah, right. The party, the state party. And, you know, look, we they, they've got an important Senate race coming up there, and yep. the Republican Party could self-annihilate. And these these things can be canaries in coal mines. Um, I remember the Saturday afternoon where our candidate, was, when I was working for Majority Leader Canner, lost his bid to be the 7th Congressional District uh, of Virginia chairman. And... Um, it wasn't taken as the big deal that it should have been, you know, on that Saturday afternoon or moving forward. Looking back, it told us a lot. Yeah. Well, well, you guys shouldn't have come out for fluoridated water. I tried to warn you at that moment that that was a slippery slope. Before we go, we we go down a slippery slope. I think we need Jeff to hit the music. It's listener mailbag. Okay, right. hackaroos. If you have a question for us, you can send it to the mailbag. 
The address, highly creative, is hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com. Okay, Doug, here we go. You're first up with a question from Greta who wants to know, we have an epidemic of gun violence in this country. Agree. Whether it's kids being shot on the streets, at the grocery store, in a church, in a classroom, at a music festival, etc. It is a public health emergency. We have to do something. What? can be done. I second that, by the way, Doug, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think part of the challenge is that's that, that last part we have to do something is what always gets in, in the way of, of the politics here or the politics that get in the way of it. You know, well, I remember being on a cable panel recently where this issue came up and it was this familiar conversation. Well, you don't need your assault weapon um, to go hunting and the person then on the right says, well, you're not, you know, the second amendment says and ergo. So because we want to do something, we're not specific about what we do. And what was interesting about the bill that passed, um, last year, uh, was that they came up with specifics. So be specific on what that something is. Good example. Uh, the CDC and the NIH, you know, had launched its basically first significant study into the causes of gun violence, which also includes suicide in 20 years. And um, it was about, I believe, $20 million. That's not enough. So here's one thing that Republicans and Democrats can do in a bipartisan fashion is to get together on the budget committee, the appropriations committee, and increase this funding. And it's a way that you can point to things that you're doing to solve the problem instead of just going back to the same conversation that in political, uh, it divided Washington with Republicans in the House and Democrats in the Senate. Those big things, whatever they may be, aren't going to happen. Things like this can. Yeah. You know, look, I, uh, I agree with that, that we, we ought to fund that. We should recognize, I agree we should recognize this as a public health crisis. Frankly, we should recognize suicide as a public health crisis and mental health issues. But the fact remains, we have 46% of the privately owned guns in the world and 4% of the population. And we have, surprise, surprise, exponentially more uh, gun deaths. I don't know what you do about it because there's so many guns out there. I, I really don't know. But I will say this, Mike Murphy, in your state, they had two mass shootings. Yes. They also have per capita, I think, the lowest or among the lowest uh, gun-related uh, uh, incidents uh, in the in the country. And some of the states that have no gun laws, or, or no, they all have gun but very lax gun laws are right at the top. So there is an impact of, you know, reg of, of, of uh, universal background checks and other uh, gun safety laws to stop uh, or at least slow down gun violence. And the problem is that they are done state by state and we don't have any national standards. Yeah. And even, even beyond that, there are a hundred million guns out there and a lot of people like it that way. You can't go door to door and confiscate them all. Background checks are supported widely by Republicans, even by gun owners. Can't so pass it through Congress. Though. You can't get it through Congress. Exactly. But it, it is the one thing politically where there's cover to go fight for. And, you know, we made some incremental progress on it last year. The other thing, we have the technology now, I'm going to use a terrible word here, to profile the kind of troubled young men who commit an overwhelming number of these crimes, which means you do have to open up some of the mental health laws, make it easier for people to report them. 
uh, that is controversial, but I think it's easier to control or monitor or try to preempt 25,000 troubled people who fit a profile than 100 million guns in circulation. But all of it is hard politically, and it, it has to be incremental, slow progress. I want to ask you your question, but I would just say that every other country in the world has mental health problems as well. They don't have this problem because there aren't guns. And with the, some of these, the most um, egregious mass shootings have been ascribed to young people with mental health problems. But there are shootings in communities across this country on a daily basis that have nothing to do with mental health. And uh, so this is a broader problem than that. And it's yeah, just the problem is you can't take the guns away. That's the problem. Yeah, but uh, we could just, we could talk about this forever, but we can't because Drew wants to know, Mike Murphy, how would the GOP presidential primary be affected by a Trump indictment in Georgia? Would the law and order party rally around Trump or dump him? Would his primary rivals use it against him or attack his indictment? Well, I think the rivals, look, look, Trump is a bit of a zombie right now, walking around, pieces of flesh falling off. The, the, the question is what the slope of the decline is. And there's no doubt there's a decline. That's why people are out running now, making the argument we got to move beyond Trump. Now, if he were indicted, he would say it's all political. And a lot of his core supporters, which used to be 45, 50 percent of the party, now it's 30 percent of the party. I think in six months it'll be 20 percent of the party. Uh, will say, yeah, it's a put up job. How dare they? And he'll rant and rave. His primary opponents don't need to attack him. They just need to let him decompose, which is a strategy they all have. So I, I think it would light up cable TV. I think partisans on each side would howl about it. But I think it would be subordinate to a larger overall Trump decline. It would be a symptom of that uh, and wouldn't be the center of the debate about Trump. But, you know, if he goes to prison, then <laughs> he, uh, he'll look good in orange, but that does make it pretty hard to run for president. We're a long way for that. He does look good in orange. But, Doug, what happens if Trump gets indicted in Georgia? I'm reminded, your comment, David, reminds me that Barack Obama saying orange is the new black about John Boehner was one of the funniest presidential lines I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I actually agree with everything Mike said. It is a rallying cry for that really Trump part of the base, the, not the Fox News part of the base, the one American news. But that's a shrinking part of the base, or at least, you know, as they're looking at other people that they are Trump specific. So it's a problem for him. It, it benefits him very short term, problem for him, medium to longer term. And certainly helps his opponents say, look, Donald Trump was treated unfairly, but we got to move on. Right, right. And they'll be quite happy to say that he was treated unfairly. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, it's a tragedy that he's rotting away here. Boy, those mean Democrats. Now back to my three-point plan. Uh, all right, Axe, you're going to land us here yes. with a little remembrance through a question of President Jimmy Carter, who has checked himself into hospice at the age of, I believe, 98 now. Wow, that's yes. impressive. So Patty wants to know, with the sad news of President Carter entering hospice care, I was wondering if you had any fun insider stories of him to honor his legacy. Well, uh, first of all, yes, 98 is impressive. What's more impressive is how many of those years have been productive and put to uh, the service of not just his country, but humanity, uh, you know, right to the very end, Jimmy Carter uh, who could have uh, lived a, um, you know, a different kind of life, has devoted himself to uh, service on, in so many different 
ways. And, uh, but I, I will tell you that I was with him in the summer of 2015. He came to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. We were out of session, but we had a small group of students. Uh, and he came to speak and they had a stool for him to sit on. Because uh, at then he was only, he was a, a youngster of 91 or two. And uh, he, he, he was, he refused. He said, take that stool away. And he stood there for 45 minutes taking questions from these students and really giving a homily on the importance of service uh, and inspired the entire group. Two days later, I think they announced that he had brain cancer. And he knew that at the time. He knew that at the time that he was speaking uh, and that he refu and, and, and refused the, the stool. And uh, that was Jimmy Carter. You know, he had, he, had a, he had a higher purpose than to bemoan his fate or, or favor his, uh, his age. And, uh, and it, was, it was really an extraordinary thing to watch and to be a part of. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, that there, there too, I mean, history certainly will be much kinder to Jimmy Carter than the voters were in 1980, uh, not, not just for the things that he did in public office, but for these decades and decades when he resolved, you know, crises around the world, we, eradicating the guinea worm in Africa alone has saved countless uh, lives. I mean, he just put himself uh, uh, you know, he just saw his life as one uh, that dedicated to serving other people. It was deeply connected with his faith, and the world is a better place for it. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I um, I would say I'm a little harsher critic of his presidency. I think he was a mediocre president. I think that's what history will show. But if you look at his full life, he was indeed a great American. Served in the nuclear navy under Rickover, which was not a not a day in the park. Got elected, formed governor of Georgia. Ran a brilliant campaign to upset the apple cart from nowhere to win the Democratic nomination. Got elected president, and then, as you said, David, post president, he he led an amazingly uh, unselfish life of public service. When plenty of presidents are off saying, well, wait a minute, at 20 million, do I get a discount on the money management? So I, uh, over history, not, not, I'm not trying to indict anybody now, but, uh, so in the fullness of life, and there's no doubt he, Jimmy Carter is a great American and, uh, there are lessons in his life for all of us. We should remind everyone that he became president after the horrendous Watergate, yeah. Watergate period. And, uh, no one, ever doubted his personal integrity, his Agreed. honesty, his character. And that alone was an important contribution uh, to our country. Anyway, Doug High, we appreciate you, brother. We hope you'll come back often. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, pal. Nice job. We'll see you all next week. If you want to vote in Chicago, give me a call, by the way, Doug. I can hook you up. All right. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week with a lot of news and the political madness here on Hex on Tap. Thank you.